welcome to Pro-Ho, a movement that focuses on candid dialogue to bring to light shared experiences of black and brown bodies to highlight the societal conditioning that has stunted our sexual liberties and wellness. I'm your host, Pendajai, and on today's episode, we are debunking the virginity myth and rethinking the traditional heteronormative definition of sex. I'm joined by activist, author, and much more, Blair Imani. Let's get Blair on the phone all the way from L.A. I'm so excited that you are on this podcast, which is called Pro-Ho, and basically I'm just breaking down like a lot of racial, religious, cultural, societal constructs that are um, not allowing black and brown, yeah, breaking down all the bullshit that's not allowing black and brown people to express their sexual liberties in the way that they want, and so I'm so thrilled to have you on, welcome. Thank you for having me, thank you for doing this work, I think it's so necessary, like there's been literal centuries of work to make us feel oppressed and make us feel ashamed of our bodies and just pleasure, etc. So um, it's necessary to undo that work. So I, I commend you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an, a very exciting and necessary journey. And today I was thinking about the idea of virginity and what that means and how we can debunk this virginity myth. And essentially what that means is redefining what sex means to include more queer narratives and and less about heteronormative and misogynistic viewpoints that sex has to be like penetrative sex between a man and a woman, a vagina and a penis. And so I wanted to talk to you about like, first of all, starting, what is your learned idea of what virginity is? Well, I'm very lucky. I learned the um, radical narrative before I learned the BS narrative. Um, being that, well, directly from my mom, that virginity was created to oppress people with vaginas and make people with vaginas feel ashamed of their bodies, and that's total nonsense. So that's what I learned. <laughs> and then I start attending a school, um, the all-girls Catholic school, and <clears throat> basically the narrative became the inverse, which is, you should feel ashamed of your body. You are defined by penetrative sex, and da 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 And so that just became something to rise up against, and I actually got kicked out of a many uh, a biology class um, for refuting that ideology. But my mom would always pick me up from school and be very proud. <laughs> bad. That's really badass to be kicked out of class. For telling the truth. For telling the truth, exactly. So did you feel, you knew right away, like you weren't going to confirm, co- conform to these ideas that you were being taught in school because your mom has solidified these ideas. Absolutely. And it was just kind of this idea of like, how does it make sense on a scientific level, on a spiritual level, on a just logical, everyday, casual person level that you become a different person after something has penetrated you. That makes no sense. Exactly. And especially since all of this myth is is based around the hymen, which really is just a, a body part that doesn't even exist. And if we're really thinking about like breaking the hymen, that literally for women could be, if you're using tampons, like you could break your hymen using a tampon, <laughs> riding like a bull, doing gymnastics. So like if we're really breaking it down, I think most of us lost our virginity way <laughs> before we actually had penetrative sex, if, if that's a definition that we are going to stand by. Um, and so I think what's really important and evident is that we need to redefine that idea of virginity and allow it to include more. Well, honestly, for me, it's not even something that we need to redefine. For me, it's something you need to throw away completely because I think it's been so harmful. Mm-hmm. And I'm the type of person where if something's been harmful and it really hasn't served a purpose in society, like a nobler purpose, and it's just been existing to oppress people, throw it away. Throw it away. 
<laughs> but if that's the case, like, no, we need to throw know, a whole lot of shit away. A lot. I know. I mean, I throw a lot of shit away on a daily basis, so um, I'm cool with that. I mean, sometimes I recycle because we can't be throwing away everything. Mm-hmm. But um, I think in terms of virginity for me, it's like, well, how has it been liberatory for people? And I think for some people, like, redefining it not as, like, this moment where you're body or your worth as a person fundamentally changes based on experience like the first time you have sex instead you know getting rid of this qualifier of what defines you as and just saying I'm going to step into this um, outside of societal constructs and so yeah the first time I have sex will be special or you know what I define to be sex will be special but it doesn't necessarily have to be this puritanical notion of of virginity and purity as uh, society dictates Oh, definitely. And I think everyone defines sex different differently. I uh, have a friend who the other day was was speaking about like, oh, what she what what her idea of sex is and and counting her sexual partners because we were we were joking about this. She's like, oh, that person doesn't count. This person doesn't really count. It wasn't really sex in my mind. And that really sparked something in me. I was like, wow, we all have different ideas of what that means. And for our bodies, our experiences, if you orgasm, if you didn't, or penetrative or foreplay, those kind of things, which are all sex, how we relate to them and how we, you know, qualify, what we qualify as sex. And, and it's different for everyone. Absolutely. And it makes you think about like all the cheeky discussions we would have about, um, in regard to the Clinton scandal, where Bill Clinton was defining what was and what was not sexual relations and how that kind of just, like, impacted, as a 90s kid, our understanding of sexual health. Because I think, you know, um, on a harmful standpoint, if virginity is this thing that is supposed to be sacred and everyone is, you know, quote-unquote, saving themselves, then people start to be, um, frankly, dishonest with themselves when it comes to what do I need to get tested for. Um, I remember having a roommate in college who, uh, I'm not going to say their name because that's really messed up, but they would go, um, you know, they were, they were sexually active, and they didn't feel that they were sexually active. They would be having anal sex, and they, they felt that they didn't need to get tested because it wasn't vaginal penetrative sex. And that's harmful because you do need to get tested if you're, you know, interacting or interfacing with another human body. That's just safety. Um, and even for your own self, like you don't know, um, like you can cause uh, a yeast infection from um, vaginal stimulation if you're not washing your hands properly or if you're even wearing underwear that's not breathable. So you really need to be on your sexual health um, even before you consider something to be the end-all, be-all of your virginity. Oh, definitely. And I think because we, in our school systems, we uphold this idea of virginity in return, we lack the education, like you're saying, to know the the hazard, not hazards, but yes, putting yourself, your bodies at risk when you're participating in activities that you have been taught. It's like, oh, this is not included in sex. This isn't sex. This you're still a virgin. Count. This doesn't count. Exactly. Yeah. You know, you can have anal sex, but as long as it's not your precious vagina, you're fine. You're safe. Nothing can happen to you. Right. And so because we're upholding these ideals, the lack of education associated with that in turn has made us more susceptible to to having these health issues down the line and then even more than that i remember there's this um uh, at the same old girls school there are a lot of lesbians there's lesbians everywhere it's great um but they would be misled i think by sexual health to say like okay well if the penis isn't involved and these were lesbians who both had vaginas and people thinking okay well then i never need to get tested because i'm never you know engaging in quote unquote real sex which is nonsense 
um, you know, sex is how we define it for ourselves and for our partners, and our partners define, um, but to say that and then to preclude people from being able to get the sexual help that they need because you're not considering what they're doing valid sexual intercourse, that's a huge problem. Oh, definitely, especially with lesbians or other queer people. When people are saying, oh, you're not having real sex, you're just having foreplay, that really downplays the sexual experience that everyone's having. It's like, why is why is the sex I'm having with my partner not as meaningful or not as significant as um, heteronormative or heterosexual experiences of man and woman? Yeah, it's really a, it's a gobbledygook mess. And so I think if we start by having, you know, these inclusive queer um, conversations, it's just better. And I, I worked at Planned Parenthood for a year um, between 2016 and 2017. And one of the things that we would be pushing for in places like Louisiana and Mississippi would be inclusive sex ed. And it's something that doesn't even exist in, you know, the liberal mecca that's supposed to be California um, widespread. Like, you know, the school I went to where they were talking about abstinence only was at a private school in California. So there's still a lot of work to be done. But when you say that, uh, I think a lot of adults think to themselves, oh, no, they're just going to be encouraging all types of you know, non-traditional weird stuff, and it might be weird to you, but the, the point is that we're talking about, you know, really defining what sexual contact means, and what consent means, and then also how that fits into the medical context. Yes, and I still, I'm not familiar, even in New York City, do you know if Planned Parenthood still is advocating for this type of sexual education in New York schools? Well, it's difficult because when you talk, when you talk about school, you know, there's this, first of all, most schools in the United States, I know, do the abstinence-only sex ed, which is not sex ed. It shouldn't even be called sex ed. It's just this idea of, hey, it's like don't ask, don't tell. Yes. But for, you know, horny teenagers. It's like when you're, when you're a child and you ask your parent for something and they're like, no, and you're like, why not? They're like, because I said so. That's literally what it is. And you're like, well, that's all I want to do right now. <laughs> and so um, just not, not great. And so... Um, I'm not sure what it is um, state by state, but I know that Advocates for Youth, for example, and Planned Parenthood Gen Action um, do a lot of work um, creating online sex ed, op- like, you know, um, curriculum that, you know, people can teach for themselves. They're like, what my mom did, which was basically hold sex ed right in our living room with students that were willing, um, turned a lot of parents off because a lot of parents didn't want to have that conversation, but it was also great for parents who didn't want to have that conversation but still wanted their kids to be educated. And so I think that's what it takes sometimes is us putting um, knowledge into our own hands and really saying we're going to educate our kids even if the schools aren't going to do it. Wait, so your mom just literally called over kids to, to your house and spoke with them? Yeah. Yeah. She was all, she's, she, oh, she's still a cool mom. Like, she was also the mom like, my parents don't let me shave my legs. Well, I was like, okay, well, come over to my house and they can screw off. <laughs> <laughs> My mom didn't let me shave my legs either for a really long time. She was like, no, that's, you don't need to start. Once you start, it's all over. Don't do it. Don't do it yet. Um, But I do kind of regret starting to shave my legs, actually. So that's one piece of advice that I probably should have taken from my mom. But, um. I mean, hair always grows back. It does. (laughs) It does. Luckily. Um, So is the, is the work, I know you wrote a book, correct? Yes. So is your book. Modern history. Yes. Modern history. Does your book relate to these causes that we've been discussing, or sex education, or sex liberation? Do you incorporate any of those ideas into the book? Uh, yeah. So I feature um, Alentia Johnson, who was the first. Um, the hold on, let me pull it up. We'll edit all this out. <laughs> yes. And I'll just act like I've memorized everything. I did write it. It's just the memorization part. Okay, here we go. 
Okay, yeah, so Modern History definitely talks about this. One person who I left up in the book is Alessia Johnson, and so Alessia Johnson started working at Planned Parenthood as a press officer, which was my position when I was there, um, and she focused on the black community. And I think that, you know, in the realm of equality, um, there's that, you know, very famous picture where it's like what equality is and then what equity is. And so she realized, okay, black people need sex, you know, sex education equity. So it might not be the same as what happens in other communities, but there's different taboos to overcome, there's different stigmas to overcome. And so Alencia really focused on that. Um, and so she started as the organization's first director of constituency communications, the first director of constituency communications, which is a completely new department focusing on faith communities, LGBTQ communities, and communities of color, and young people. And so Alencia is a visionary. She basically was like, okay, we can't have the same sex ed language for every community. Some communities don't even speak that same language. Some communities speak that same language, but don't speak that same dialect. Or some communities just don't relate to that, those examples. So I'm going to flip that script. And so um, she's blazed new trails. Um, she worked for Planned Parenthood until very recently. She actually just started working on the Elizabeth Warren campaign. Oh, and so I'm really excited to see these um, progressive folks getting in there and changing um, what it means. And I think that she also just left her mark on Planned Parenthood as an organization because when I was working there, I was doing um, education trainings on different things like within the disability community. And I don't know if those conversations would have been as uh, uplifted or as honored if it wasn't for the work that people like Alencia are doing. That's incredible. And I think it it really is telling when you're saying that we have to shift and cater the conversation and the education to the communities that we're in, because there is no right answer. There is no one solution. And I think a lot of times organizations go in and they have their spiel and they think that this is, you know, relatable on all fronts for every person. But just like every body is different, like every mind is different. We internalize information differently. So I think the more that we can cater to different people in different environments, just like the more successful outcome that we will have and can cater to be. And, and I mean, we experience this in everyday life, right? Like you don't, when you're talking to a four-year-old, you're not, you're not explaining something the same way that you're speaking to a 16-year-old about that concept or yeah, that idea. Yeah, like you're not going to explain something to a baby boomer the same way you're going to explain something to somebody who's Gen Z. And you're not going to explain somebody to somebody who's, you know, well, you might, but like, I feel like when you're talking to, you know, a conservative Catholic, you're going to change your language or you're going to shift so that you're meeting them where they are the way you might speak to somebody else. Or the way you're going to speak to somebody in Texas might be different the way you speak to somebody in rural Utah. It's all very different. We all use different regional language. We all can use different examples from pop culture. So that can be re relevant to some people and not to others. Um, but I think it's really about meeting people where they're at. And if it's an organization that's um, dedicated to sexual health, and they need to make sure that they're adapting their language to people so that they can get that point across. Definitely. I the um, game taboo came to mind of like when you're trying to describe the word but you can't use these other words that's to me that's literally like when you go into a space when you know people no one in this room is going to understand your lived experience or how you can relate to this topic you're like okay I can't say this word or this word but I still need to get this point across that's what comes to mind. Yeah and I remember not necessarily at Planned Parenthood but like in my other work while I was a student at LSU we would be trying to educate people about abortion or, like, condoms or whatever. And, like, some people would get up there and you'd start talking to them. And as soon as you said the word abortion, they'd walk away. And you'd be like, damn, I really need to educate this person. So what am I going to say instead? I'll say terminate a pregnancy or end a pregnancy. Or, you know, like, decide to, you know, just use, use different words. And then the person might listen for a little while longer. And they'll get the education that they needed. But whatever buzzword turns them off, we don't need to use that. And it sucks, but the point is to educate. 
Right. So in general, do you feel like when you change those buzzwords around that people did stay? Oh, yeah. That's definitely what happened. Like, we would say end of pregnancy instead of the word abortion. And it sucks because I'm talking about literally the same thing. But, you know, I think that some words are so maligned, it's hard to do. So, like, if you talk about um, feminism with some people, like, even um, folks within my own community, that's, you know, like, with my aunts and uncles who come over for Thanksgiving dinner, like, some of my older aunts, because of the way that feminists treated them as black women during the civil rights movement in, in the 80s, they don't want to hear the word feminist because they think of, you know, hairy-armed women liberationists who are white and not concerned with black women. And that's a line from Gil Scott Heron. Um, and so when I talk about feminism, I won't say the word feminism, but I will talk about the values and virtues of feminism. Because sometimes the work that needs to be done is to heal, right? But sometimes you need to just get your point across. And the healing has to happen in a different conversation or in a different space, which is valid. But um, we can't always do both at the same time in an effective manner. And so that's a skill I would definitely pass on to organizers who are trying to have these conversations. If you're in a community where maybe the word, um, whatever word, like banana doesn't translate perfectly, <laughs> then say something else, you know, <laughs> or try to describe it. Say like yellow, like yellow long, long fruit. fruit. <laughs> yeah, then than to say the word banana because you're describing the same thing but maybe you're able to pass on that knowledge in a way that doesn't um, make people self-select out of that conversation. Definitely. I myself have done a couple panels with Planned Parenthood and they have been the largest support system to me launching this um, platform. And after one of the events, um, someone randomly anonymously emailed me and they had said that they felt they were really inspired by the conversation that occurred between the community, but they, they felt that in, instead of a lot of cultural constructs that they felt were um, getting in the way of their expression sexual expression it was more so religious and I know um, a few years ago I think in 2015 that you converted to Islam and I wanted to know just in terms of your which congrats like that's beautiful and that's amazing and I wanted to know in terms of that journey uh, how have you had have you had to deal with any religious shame in regards to like your own sexual exploration and performance well, I think that the performance element is very interesting because I'm in a relationship with someone who's masculine presenting, um, male presenting even, and it's very interesting to be a bisexual person because I'm not interpreted to be uh, queer. I'm interpreted to be straight, but like that's not my lived experience. And I've written about it, I actually wrote about it for Bumble, talking about what it means to be in a queer relationship versus um what it means to be a queer person in a straight-looking relationship and what that even means, right? Um, and so I think you can definitely, like, upend constructs of straightness when you say, hey, those people who you think are straight, you don't even know. And they're right. like, what? Um, which I love doing in my daily life. I yeah, because uh, what does straight even look like? <laughs> one of my teachers told me in um, high school that I was an iconoclast, and I didn't know what that meant, and so I looked it up, and I was like, that's definitely me, somebody who, like, appends definitions because even myself being um, – uh, you know, somebody who is pro-black, but because I'm fair-skinned and I have light skin privilege, not necessarily red in certain ways, when I was in rooms and they'd be talking about black people in a negative way, I'd be like, um, excuse me, not allowed. <laughs> and they'd look at me like, hey, that's not even, like, I don't even understand how you care. Right. Um, and it's like, black people, it's, it's the monolith that you think black people are, that's not even the case, or gender, or sexuality or religion. So anyway, in terms of religious shame, I was really lucky because when I converted to Islam, I did so in a way that, well, my friends and, like, who became my family when I was flirting at the mosque, 
they wouldn't even let me know their own interpretations of things. I'd be like, what does this mean? And they'd be like, I could tell you, but you want to convert, right? So you need to learn it yourself. So they'd give me the, the proper, you know, surah to look at, the proper hadith to look at, and they'd have me come up with my own um, opinion, and then we could talk about it. But it was never like, I'm going to impose this onto you. So because of that, I was really kind of outside of male supremacy, Arab supremacy, and the way I learned Islam was very much self-taught. And I think that's how it should be with any religion, any type of thing you're learning. If you're able to internalize and understand it in your own way, then you're able to have these conversations where it's like, these are my convictions, this is my understanding, this is your conviction and your understanding, but it's not necessarily because I don't believe what I believe because you believe it, I believe it because I read it, and because I had a conversation with God. And so when it comes to religious shaming, it kind of was just like, well, you're wrong, like this is what I know to be true. You know, or not necessarily you're wrong, but it doesn't fit for me. And so I think there are many Islams, right? There are many um, conversations people have with God. There are many Christianities. Um, and that's not just, just the doctrines, but the way that people apply the doctrines to themselves, right? So if something doesn't fit for me in my life, um, then it doesn't fit for a reason. And so I have to figure out how to parse that through myself. So when I was talking about being queer, I remember, like, first feeling like, I don't even need to do this advocacy. I don't look queer. And that was, like, my own limitations. And then I'm realizing, okay, wait, I'm definitely queer still. I want to have these conversations. And for me, it was um, the pulse shooting when people started to turn Muslims and queer people against each other. And I'm sitting there being in both of those groups and being like, hey, where do I fit in? Yes. That I started to realize I need to do this work. And so now it's kind of transformed into me being an ambassador for Muslims for progressive values and really trying to push this idea that you can be Muslim and be progressive. And in fact, the interpretations that are very homophobic, those actually came from Western colonization, from puritanical Victorian ideology. So it's all very complex, but I feel very supported and loved by God and loved by my community. And um, the clarity and like wholeness that I feel as a Muslim, not necessarily because I'm Muslim, but because I feel like I'm myself and I have a place within myself um, and within the universe, that's what really keeps driving me. That's incredibly beautiful and inspiring. And I feel like that, I hope that people who are dealing with that kind of um, dichotomy and back and forth, maybe in thinking, like, I love how you said that you're not necessarily, it's, you know that you are loved by God and that relationship is what's driving your actions and your behavior and, and feeling supported in your decisions. Whereas I think some people have a hard time in taking scriptures literally or not knowing how they can live one way, but then be reading something. Or access it. Yes, exactly. Do you and have... So that's another big thing. It's like everyone... So Islam is very democratic, you know, like and not even like a representative democracy, a direct democracy to use words that, like, might be more secular, easy to understand, right? So, like, a representative democracy, that might be, like, um, the way some uh, Catholicism functions where you have to confess your sins to a priest, and that priest will absolve you or give you um, recommendations on how to pray, etc. In Islam, you don't even need to go to the mosque. You have a direct conversation with God, and that is directly encouraged in the scripture. And I know there are, um, that's not necessarily the, that's a broad way to paint Catholics, so I want to make room for that as well. So that's not necessarily all how all Catholics operate, or how all Muslims operate. But anyway, so when I hear people say, you don't have access to a, to a law because you're a convert, or you don't have access to a law because you're, um, you know, you don't speak Arabic. That actually just happened to me today on Twitter. I just look at them and I go, I'm not even going to have this conversation because nowhere in the Quran does it say you have to live near Mecca. I'm sorry, you have to live this many square feet next to Mecca, and you have to know this much Arabic, and then you can talk to God. Mm. Islam has been translated into so many different languages, so it's Christianity and Judaism, because it's for everyone. 
Um, and so I get really frustrated when people say, you don't have access to God because everyone does. That's why God is infinite. God has room for everybody. It's like um, the love that God has is so abundant. How dare anyone say that's not for you? That yes. speaks to their own limitations of love and access than it does to God. And it's so real on social media. I mean, I can only imagine what what type of responses that you get via Twitter and Instagram um, from certain communities. But you are thriving. Yeah, it's really varied. I feel like I'm thriving, right? So that's the thing with, um, you know, being so sure of God's love, right? I feel very, like, if everything I did was falling apart, then maybe I would reconsider what I was doing because I feel very much, like, in the response of God and the response of the universe. But I feel very much, like, sure in what I'm doing and when I pray about something, I feel like I get direct responses, and um, I feel like I'm living my life in a loving and open way, and um, it's like the very black, black proverb, like, if you're not living right, you know, um, but I do feel like I'm living right, and so I, I don't know, like, not even I don't know, it would be wrong of me to say that's because I'm Muslim specifically, but I think it's because when you know something in your heart and you're able to exercise that truth, whether that's being a vegan or being um, somebody who does a yoga as a spiritual practice, whenever you're doing something fully and your heart is committed and into it, the rest of your life falls together um, in a beautiful way. It's like when the Tetris pieces line up and the, and the screen clears. Um, and so that might be, you might find that through Islam, you might find that through Christianity, you might find that through a certain vegetarian diet, like who knows, but when you find what's right for you, it will click. You mentioned earlier that you are definitely navigating being Muslim and being a queer woman, and then on top of that, being black. So how do you think you are, and which a lot of times those three things are very separate, and those separate communities like to keep them separate? Like you have, if you can't be pro-black and be black and not support black queer people, right? And so how are you, how are you molding and creating all of these things into one to yourself obviously it is you you are existing as these three entities but how are you creating that space for yourself and for other people to accept it and know that it's possible to be more than one to identify with more than one thing well I kind of have like a funny kind of riffy example but I'm going to go with it yes. so very recently I dressed up as um, LeVar Burton's character you don't I saw this LeVar Burton. I saw this on Instagram Kinte and yes. he was Jordy LaForge, and he was the Reading Rainbow guy. Reading Rainbow. The reason why I'm a confident reader. And he's also the reason why I'm a published author. So I'm really, like, over the moon. And, in fact, today I just got invited to host a children's TV show um, because they saw me on his page. So I'm over the moon with LeVar. LeVar yes, LeVar. Anyway, so this is him. <laughs> and um, he was defending me because I was wearing a hijab in my interpretation of Jordy LaForge. Now, Jordy LaForge um, is a character on Star Trek who was actually born, will be born, in 2335 um, in Mogadishu, Somalia, which is a black Muslim-majority country. And so I was like, wow, this is the closest thing I'm going to get to a Muslim on Star Trek right now. So I'm going to dress up as LeVar, or as LaForge, and I did. And people were pissed off. They were like, wow, in this fictional universe, there are no Muslims. And I'm like, first of all, it's fictional universe is fictional, honey. It doesn't even exist. Second of all, <laughs> how bold of you to say in this thing that doesn't even exist, you don't belong. Like, that's bold as hell. So that was frustrating to me, and so it really started a conversation about, like, people who are, like, exclusionary atheists, or people who are just anti-Muslim, trying to enforce their anti-Muslim narratives onto a fictional space. So that was one thing. The other thing was that people were supporting me, who are, like, some people who are very homophobic, 
who have actually like said to me, I can't support you, were sharing the article because they didn't know it was me because my face is relatively covered. Oh. So they're saying, wow, more power to the sister. And I'm sitting there being like, should I tell them I'm gay? <laughs> and so I feel like that was like a really riffy example, right? Because people will support you when you fit into their narrative. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's something wrong with you, but it's definitely something wrong with their perception of who is and who isn't accepted. Because if I can, if I'm abhorrent to you as my full self, but if I'm in a costume and it fits into your narrative of what is empowerment, then that has that speaks more to you than it does to me. But it was hilarious to see um, those same but people. I'm the full self yeah, but it, it, be, it be your own people. But also, it's like, it be your own people, but just because you're in a community with somebody doesn't mean that they are Advoc- your family yeah. or they are who you're meant to be with. Definitely. They don't all, just because they look like you or it doesn't mean that they're truly an advocate of the work that you're doing. I, w- I mean, did you... And vice versa. I think that's like work we all need to reflect on and do in, in our own way. Like, just because you're sharing space with somebody doesn't mean that you automatically support them. You have to do that work. Oh, definitely. Um, and you might not want to do that work. Like, if somebody's praying next to me and they've said something against Muslims, or they've said something, well, if we're praying together, they're probably Muslims. So, better example, um, if I'm praying next to somebody and they said something against black people or they said something against queer people, I really have to sit back and think, and I, how am I going to support them? So, a great example of this is um, I was sitting with somebody and I had just watched a film. Um, where it was, you know, their community was featured and they were directly impacted by the situation. I'm, I'm keeping it vague on purpose. Um, and I'm sitting down with them and we had sat down to talk because, you know, we're both Muslim women. We want to connect. We want to interface. And then she said some very interesting things about gay people. And we're sitting at dinner across from each other and we're the only two people there. And so I was sitting there like, hmm, I've already offered to pay for dinner. And now I'm sitting in this homophobic diatribe. What do I do? And so that's kind of the moment going back to what I was talking about with like things like abortion. Okay, well, if I can't connect with them on the subject matter and use that language, what can I do to connect with them on a human level? And that's when I try to think about things like togetherness and family and safety and acceptance and just universal terms that people can sign on to and then try to flip the script and remix it. And I think that's also something that we're taught to do as black people. Sometimes it's called code switching. Sometimes it's called, you know, just speaking a different language. But we can do that in a way that keeps ourselves safe because I didn't feel safe in that, in that conversation. But then it's also a way that maybe we can get people on our side for better or for worse. And we ended up being able to connect. You know, I was like, well, what I'm feeling right now is that you are coming from an interpretation that is very male, that is very patriarchal. And I didn't have that same cultural stigma. So that's where my interpretation comes from. So let's see where we can connect. And we just started talking and we had great pasta um, <laughs> and we had a great conversation. But, ooh, it was heated there for a moment. Like it was kind of one of those moments where you just taste like iron in your mouth. Like, yes. like oh, it's about to be a fight. Uh, but it was, and we ended up being able to connect. That's beautiful. And you felt like for at least for that time that what you had to say resonated with her or shifted maybe her perspective in some small way. Yeah, because she like, I think when people feel like their, fund, their foundational understanding of something has shifted, then they get hostile and you get hostile because you feel the same way. And so one of the things we connected on, well, she just, you know, I think she does the positions that it's wrong to be gay in, in Muslim. And I was like, well, I'm not going to change her, her mind over dinner. But what I am going to change her mind on is the fact that people are punished for that because nowhere in the Quran, well, my interpretation is that nowhere in the Quran doesn't say it's wrong to be gay in Muslim, period. Um, she disagreed with that, so we tabled that. And I said, but what the Quran doesn't say, and this is unambiguous, is that gay people should, nowhere in the Quran doesn't say gay people should be punished or that it's the duty of other Muslims to punish people for their sexual orientation or gender identity. That's period. You know, that's not ambiguous. And so 
um, we talked about that, and she agreed with me. And so from there, we were able to step back. So she was able to step out of her hostility, and we were able to move towards conversations about love and acceptance and um, historical interpretation and colonization in the scripture. But that's not work anyone has to do. You know, that's something you have to decide to do. I could have left and been like, you know what? You pay for the drinks. I'm leaving. Um, because, save my coins. Uh, but I was feeling like... I did feel kind of backed into a corner. I was literally sitting on the booth side, so she was closer to the exit, so literally in a corner. But um, that's not work that we have to do as marginalized people, whether that's sitting next to somebody who you learn is Islamophobic or somebody who you realize is um, anti-black and they didn't think that you were anti-black because they don't see you as black or some BS. Mm-hmm. So that's not work we have to do, but it's work that can be done. It can be, and it's little steps. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I want to know, um, lastly, because such an important topic that's on my heart, especially having a niece and nephew and, and working with younger people, is how, like, the broader concept of how can we raise liberated children. And I just want to know, in your experience, um, I'm sure working with Planned Parenthood and in the advocacy work and being an author and all of the brilliant things that you're doing, um, in your experience speaking with other queer, have you experienced, um, have you interacted with other queer Muslim younger people, Generation Z, are, like what are their voices saying? What are their concerns? How can we turn the narrative to more sex positivity? How can we help the next generation of children grow up without these constructs and things that stifle their positivity? That's a great question. And what's, what's really interesting to me is the difference between like late millennials such as myself, I'm 25, I'll be 26 this year, and like Gen Z folks. And what I find is that like late millennials, we're very interested in like labels, not necessarily like defining ourselves, but saying like, this is who I am and this is how I access this space and this is what makes me up. Um, and these are my intersectionalities, etc. And what I found with Gen Z, and if people disagree, please let me know because I'm always learning, is that people accept who they are more readily, I find, and say, and what's next? And so uh, a friend of mine came out to me recently, and they aren't out publicly, but they said, you know, I'm a queer Muslim, and I just want to continue doing the work I do, and I don't want this to, quote, unquote, get in the way, and I don't want it to be, I don't want to have to ignore who I am, I don't want it to get, I don't want it to stifle me. And I find that more common with Gen Z, like, gender, I don't fit into gender, what's next? Um, Race, like, I'm pro-black, and people don't want me to be pro-black, I'm going to do that anyway, what's next? You know? Yes. And so I feel like it's this natural progression where people who came before us, you know, especially queer folks, like, being out wasn't a safe space for them always. But then you have people like Bayard Rustin who was out in the 1940s. So it really depends. Um, and people always ebb and flow and shift and change. But I think what's important is, um, as far as raising the younger generation, even younger than Gen Z, I don't know what's after Generation Z. <laughs> Me neither. Start over again? <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, again? that's who a knows? good point, yeah. <laughs> A, a prime or a um, it's like um, with what Maya Angela said like you know people always use that in a shady way when people tell you who they are believe them but in another way in a liberatory way when people tell you who they are believe them right like if somebody says I'm not straight believe them if they say I don't identify with gender believe them like really just embrace people for who they are um, and a great example of this is actually from this show that my partner was watching on HBO called Years and Years and um one of the characters is a gay white man who's cisgender, and he's talking about how his partner, if he goes back to the Ukraine, he'll be killed, and how horrible it is that, you know, that's the reality for gay people in the Ukraine. And then uh, a kid runs by who's male presenting, yet wearing a dress and bows in their hair. And um, the character who's just finished talking about religious persecution and 
societal persecution and homophobia just says, is that okay? And then the person who's sitting across from him listening to this reflects on that and says, yeah, I don't think it matters. And I think that the persecution that your partner would go through is related to your disdain for that kid. And then the kid, and then the person says, no, he's beautiful. He's doing okay. He'll be okay. And I think it's just those types of things, right? We have to realize that our repressions are connected and that we can be oppressive to each other even if we're in the same community. And so as long as we can do that and constantly reflect and not say things like man up or you're being a sissy uh-huh. um, and not reinforce the negative parts of our childhood or of our cultural heritage, then we'll be fine. And if we listen to kids when they talk to us, we'll be fine. There's a book I'm getting um, soon. I don't know who's by, um, but it's called How to Talk So Kids Will Listen and Listen So Kids Will Talk. And I think it's that dual exchange that's necessary. We can't just think that we have something to teach. We have to understand that we have to learn too. A hundred percent. And I think a lot of it has to deal with if we, if we place these in, like essentially there are our own traumas and insecurities and, and qualms that we're dealing with. And we, if we place those on the younger generation, we're essentially, I think, taking away a lot of their adolescence, which, which includes sex and love and dating. So if we're always inflicting these, these ideas and these concepts and they're internalizing that, but not really truly living their own adolescent experience the repercussions once they are an adult it's just really unfortunate the experiences that they would miss they have missed out on because someone said no this is how it should be right as opposed to letting them just live their own experience and like you said believing that when they say who they are that's who they are and allowing them to live their life in that space and in that mindset and develop emotionally and physically in relationships coming from that viewpoint i think that's so important absolutely Beautiful. Well, I just, I want to thank you again so much for being on the show. And if you want to give us a little outro of where people can find out more about you and more about your work, or if you have anything upcoming that you would like us to know about, we are here to listen. Oh, yes. So um, by the time this episode goes up, I'll be doing the pre-order campaign for my new book um, called Making Our Way Home, The Great Migration and the Black American Dream. And it's all about um, the displacement and relocation and the idea of making a home and journeying to that home and manifesting what home means within the black community, but also within other communities like the Japanese American community, immigrant communities, Caribbean communities, etc. Um, and so that comes out on January 14th, 2020, and it'll be available on Penguin Random House on all booksellers. Um, and then you can check out my Twitter page at Blair Imani, that's B-L-A-I-R-I-M-A-N-I. And you can see my TED Talk and all my fun stuff on my website at BlairAmani.com. Um, and if you disagree or you agree with what I said, hit me up. Let's chat. Amazing. Thank you so much. You are brilliant. Congratulations on all of your success. And for everyone listening, thank you again so much for tuning into the ProHo podcast. You can follow us on ProHo.blog. Be sure to tweet, like, subscribe, refer to all of your friends. Again, and if you don't like what we're saying, of course, I want to hear all of that shit too. Um, It only makes the world better when we have all diverse opinions. So thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.